I would like to challenge each one of us, including myself, though, to a higher calling this morning, and that is to maintain a constant state of self-analysis this morning. The most spiritually mature among us will think during the sermon more about their own tongue than they will of others. So I want to challenge you and me to do just that. And then they will take what they have considered to the Lord for his sanctification. Before we consider the tongue, though, let's first of all define that of which we speak. The word used in the text that we will look at this morning, all the texts that we look at this morning, they all refer to the physical structure of the tongue. We know, though, from context and application, that the scriptural writers are addressing not just the physical tongue, but rather a whole network of structures that work together for the purpose of an individual taking that which exists in his mind and causing it to exist in someone else's mind. The tongue by itself cannot do that. The physical tongue can only do what the brain tells it to. Without the rest of the mouth and the respiratory system, It is not capable of making discernible sounds that are uh, designed to communicate a message. Therefore, we know that the use of the term tongue is a reference to a much more elaborate system, part of which functions as a moral agent that influences what the tongue says. So what is that moral agent? To broaden our consideration even further, we must take into consideration the gut, what we refer to as the gut, Some would call it our heart. Often that's used in the scriptures. Others may refer to it as our intestines. Uh, But it is that seat of our convictions that the brain feeds with thoughts in order to produce the impulses that drive the sounds made by the tongue. The impulses which we often say we just cannot control. Broadening it even further and encompassing all ways that we communicate, all the ways that we communicate thought, We need to realize that the word tongue is being used in all of these passages as a term that simply refers to everything and every way that we communicate. Remembering James' reference to the tongue in chapter 3, we could easily adapt the wording to our many other types of communication and say, for example, and the keyboard is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Texting is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. However we communicate, it's encompassed in what the Bible refers to as the tongue. It may even be without sound. It may be body language. It may be a facial expression. But it's anything that we do to communicate what exists in our heart and our mind so that others may see it or hear it. So while ground rule number one as we move forward is to self-assess, ground rule number two is that the tongue will include but not be limited to the words we speak, the words we type, and even the body language we manifest, all of which betray to the world what is in our hearts and in our minds. Let's begin with self-control. Galatians 5, 19 to 23 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Now catch this one, self-control. This robs us of our freedom to say, I just couldn't control myself. Amen? Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do we sin? Yes. Do we habituate it? No. And we no longer have excuse to. If we claim to have been saved by Christ, thus becoming a child of God, and thus having God's Holy Spirit living in us, then our passions will conform to those of the Holy Spirit, and our former uh, fleshly passions will die off. This doesn't necessarily speak of instant and perfect change, but it does mean that patterns of behavior will change. That includes the tongue. James also tells us in chapter 1, verse 26, that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In our current church culture, it has become habit to adopt the wrong thinking of the world around us. We've even built it, not necessarily here at Gateway, but in our church culture in this nation, we've even built it into our praise and worship. We've adopted the ways of the world. Pop psychology has trained us to believe that the particular ways in which we sin are somewhat justified simply because that's the way I am. That's the way I was born. That's the way I was raised. After all, I'm German, or I'm Irish, or I'm Italian, or I'm Spanish, or fill in the blank. Maybe the most annoying rationale I hear from people when they misuse their tongue is the phrase, I'm just saying. Like that somehow justifies the damage they just inflicted by their uninvited poor choice of words. If I perceive myself as a victim of my upbringing, my biology, my natural tendencies, or of my tongue, according to James, my religion is worthless. Christ came that I may be set free from my sin, including my communicative abuses. We are told in Proverbs 17, 27 to 28, that whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. What does that imply about those who do not keep silent? To be clear on this one, we are not being instructed to say nothing ever. That's not what this is telling us. Wisdom warrants, however, that one refrain from a running monologue that they limit their words to that which are necessary for proper communication in the moment and that they restrain the tongue from giving in to impulse. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. We need to understand that wisdom is antithetical to impulse. Wisdom is driven by a mind that's renewed by the Holy Spirit. Impulses are driven by the senses or the flesh. Proverbs 10, 19 warns us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The odds of a man tripping and falling down a flight of stairs increases with every step placed in the series, okay? More steps, more odds of tripping. Less steps, less odds of tripping. Replace the staircase with words. The more words that are present, the greater the odds are of offending, 
James tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs 18.13 tells us that if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. This is indeed counterculture. You'll be criticized if you take this approach, and you will be drowned out by others who believe victory is achieved through volume, through intensity, and through the number of words that they speak. That's a cultural more that we have right now. When all is said and done, though, it is the one who is perceived as wise who will be trusted and followed. If you are quick to hear, you will know exactly to what you need to respond. If you are slow to speak, you will have more time to hear and be wise in your response. Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens, his wa- opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And then in Proverbs 21.23, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. I'm the administrator at Grace Christian Academy. Almost 100% of the time that I have a kid sitting in my office because I've got to correct something, it's because he shot his mouth off. Shut up. Stop talking. Quit saying so much. And what they do is they tear each other apart with their mouths. Proverbs 21, we just read it. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Amen? Amen. Okay. The psalmist acknowledges, I can't tell you how many times i got to say that at my desk. (laughs) You'll stay out of trouble. Just keep your mouth shut. The psalmist acknowledges his inability to solve his own problem and turns to the only one who can then, uh, who who can when he makes the request in chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 141 and verse 3. He asks of God, set a guard, O Lord. Over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. Notice who he's appealing to to do that. This isn't pulling himself up by his bootstraps. He's acknowledged that he is flawed. He's unable. So he turns to God. God, would you please put a guard over my mouth? Not only will restraining one's tongue manifest the self-control that we have as supernaturally changed believers... But it will also separate the foolish and the wicked from the wise and the righteous. Proverbs 10.20 says, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 10.20 is one of those verses that reinforces that what we are talking about this morning is not just limited to the tongue as a physical apparatus, but rather the whole machine that may involve the tongue as the noisemaker, but includes an engine that drives the tongue. It says, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, and then it immediately attaches to it, but the heart of the wicked is of little worth. This is not a random spewing of unrelated thoughts. There's a reason it's stated this way. The tongue of the righteous is contrasted to the heart of the wicked, thus supporting the notion that the tongue and the heart work together to reveal either internal righteousness or internal wickedness. Other verses that point out this contrast include Proverbs 15.2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Those with wisdom use words to understand, to be knowledgeable, to be complete in their investigation of things before offering their two cents, if indeed the offering of their two cents is needed at all. 
Also, Proverbs 15, 28 points out that the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. They ponder. They think about it. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Notice that the righteousness is coupled with pondering. It's coupled with thinking. It's coupled with analyzing, with consciously filtering things through the mind. Wickedness is once again attached to uncontrolled impulsivity in which no time is taken to ponder and just allowing things to pour out. Psalm 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Just like it, Proverbs 25.11 says, a, a, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. In contrast to the wise... The fool is sensate. They operate by their flesh. And they shoot from the hip regardless of what the truth is. Accurate and thorough knowledge is not a concern of theirs. uh, And objective, pure justice is not their goal. The words of the wise are wanted as are gold and silver. While the words of the fool are not. So... Up to this point, we've examined how the tongue's proper use is desperately dependent on the exercise of self-control. And we've examined how the tongue's use reveals who is wise and righteous and who is foolish and wicked. Now let's see uh, what the word has to say about how the tongue is used to speak either truth or lies. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. There's a blessed promise that we get by following this one. Remember, the tongue is simply the valve that releases what is in the heart and mind so that all can hear what is actually deep inside. One who keeps not his tongue from evil nor his lips from speaking deceit could have his tongues and lips removed altogether and still not have solved the root problem. I think it is safe to say that everyone desires to love life and see good days. Not everyone gets the truth-telling. That truth-telling is intrinsically tied to this desired experience. Some of the most miserable, depressed, anxious people I know are those who call themselves Christians but do not keep their tongues from evil or their lips from speaking deceit. As a result, they don't love life and they don't see good days. The evil and deceit that exists or that exits their mouth, again, is simply an outward manifestation of an inward condition. And let's remember that uh, not only does one's conscience ache when one sins, if they're saved, and not only does one bring about negative consequences from others when they speak evil or deceit, but one also invites opposition from God himself. Speaking evil and deceitfully, is primarily done for self-centered reasons. Self-centered being another term for prideful. And let us not forget that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Throughout the scriptures, multiple kinds of sins are mentioned, but few make the list of God's top seven. A lying tongue lands as number two on the list given in Proverbs 6. Now, Oftentimes, too, we can tell uh, the magnitude of value of something by what it is grouped with. And in Proverbs 6, a lying tongue is grouped with haughty eyes, hands that shed innocent blood, i.e. murder, a heart that devises wicked plans, 
feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Speaking of false witness who breathes out lies, gossip is one of the most common and misunderstood fouls committed by the tongue. And unfortunately, it's one of the things that we run into most within the Christian community. A while back, I was attending a meeting with a ministry team that I belonged to. One of the women began to speak disparagingly about another team member who was not present. In response to my rebuke, she defended herself by saying that if it uh, that it isn't gossip if it's true. While untruth may be a component of gossip, it is not a necessary component. It may be attached to it frequently, but it's not necessary. Gossip can be gossip just fine without being untrue. What makes gossip gossip is not necessarily its lack of veracity, but rather its damaging message and intent. I'm sure that every one of us in this room has sin of which we are privately aware in our own personal lives, have handed that sin over to God for his sanctification, and would dread having it shared with anyone else. Is it true? Yeah. Is it anybody else's business? No. On the top of that, or on top of all that, when are the news items that we share about other people ever completely accurate? We never take into consideration all the extenuating factors when we talk about someone. There are multiple rewards that the gossiper may receive by gossiping. Gossip may be done to impress others with an insider's knowledge. Gossip may impress or shock or have any one of a variety of powerful effects on a listener. Gossip may manipulate others into seeing things in a, in a desired way. Regardless of its intent, though, gossip always results always results in destruction of reputations and relationships. Proverbs 17.9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. They're keeping it private. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Go back to Proverbs 6. You know, it says there, there's six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him, the last one is. Not that people cause division, says that he hates the one who causes division amongst the brethren. Proverbs 16:28 says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Covering an offense does not mean covering up a crime, nor does it mean not addressing it in private. It does though mean keeping matters of sin secret while still addressing them responsibly. Proverbs 11.13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Keep in mind, too, that one does not have to be the source of the gossip to be a gossiper. Proverbs 17.4 tells us that an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. A gossip may not be misusing their tongue, but may be welcoming someone else's misuse. What can you do about it? Proverbs 20:19 gives us the answer. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Abandon them. Get away from them. Finally, the tongue can be used to build up or to tear down, to encourage or to discourage, 
to even set someone's life on a positive trajectory of optimism and hope or on a negative trajectory of doubt and despair. Unfortunately, because we live in such a fallen world, it is easy to pick up the horrible speech patterns of those around us, often being totally oblivious to how inconsistent we are being with the way God instructs us to use the tongue. Proverbs 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. I began the sermon with an account of how the perverse tongue of my kindergarten teacher broke my spirit, and it did. That impacted me for years. Fortunately, I had another experience when I was in high school. It took a while to get there, but I finally had one. Um, and uh, it, too, had a significant impact on me and proved to be a tree of life, like that proverb says. I was on a bus trip, and one of the students had, uh, was noticeably distressed in a discussion with the accompanying adult chaperones, the bus driver suggested that they have the student come speak to me. I was just the kid uh, because she was confident that I would be able to help. I don't know that kid's name. I don't remember the parents involved. I don't remember the bus driver's name. All I remember is that I, I don't know to this day if I would have taken the path of ministry in which I now find myself had it not been for the kind words of that bus driver. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 16.24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for, the, for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The fact that these last verses include positive things that the, tongue can, uh, that the tongue can do or the uh, things that it can accomplish, let us know that we are not doomed to a life of saying dumb and damaging things. We do have the ability and the mandate to use our tongues in a God-glorifying way. Imagine a church in which the only words spoken are consistent with biblical instruction and Christ-likeness. We're all flawed in here. <laughs> I don't need anybody telling me that I'm sinful, that I make mistakes. We hear enough of that from the world around us. But again, imagine, imagine if everybody in here stopped hearing that from us and they started hearing uh, things of uh, edification, things that build up, things that produce vision in us. My challenge to myself and everyone listening here is to begin as soon as the service is over to take every thought captive. Stop talking. Think. Take every thought captive before it is turned into words and determine in the power of Christ to use the tongue only in a manner that is endorsed by God. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we have tongues that are driven by hearts, um, 
that are fallen and damaged and sinful. And Lord, we often use the tongue in a way uh, that does not bring you glory and does not bring edification to your people. And Lord, first of all, we seek your forgiveness on that matter. And secondly, Lord, we ask that you would invade our lives in such a way that you, not us, but you would change that. That you would supernaturally invade our lives, change our hearts and our minds such that what comes out of our mouths is only edifying. Uh, that is only conducive to the growth of the body and the advancement of the kingdom. Lord, here we are. Send us, equip us, uh, and begin with our hearts and our minds and our tongues. And Lord, grant us the power and the control to speak only those words that uh, represent you well. Help us to be those excellent witnesses in what we say. And we thank you that we can even come to your throne room this morning and ask you such things. And Lord, we look forward to see what you have to do in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.